Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. So good, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name's Andrew Jack from the Financial Times. A great pleasure to introduce uh, this panel this afternoon. So we're going to talk about PISA, um, educational PISA. Uh, and of course, something I'm sure that's familiar, at least in part, to all of you. But um, no better panel than one assembled here with both the original architect in many ways, of course, Andrea Schleicher from the OECD, and three uh, education ministers from around the world, from Portugal, from the Philippines, from Slovenia. And also uh, great that actually all three of them, of course, are also, if I can put it this way, educational practitioners alongside and before uh, being education ministers. It's not always the case, of course, in every ministerial portfolio that you have experts with real experience on the ground. Um, so what I propose is we'll have a discussion for the first 30, 40 minutes, but then very keen to throw it open to you who all are experts and no doubt with some interesting and varied opinions on the, this whole field of PISA in specific and perhaps segging a little bit more generally into approaches to measure, monitor, benchmark and improve, of course, educational outcomes in, around the world. But let me start first with you, Andreas. I mean, just tell us a little bit about um, how and why PISA came into being in the first place. What drove you to think about this idea of creating some sort of an international benchmark? Yeah, you know, the idea was really to create a level playing field where we can look at each other, see each other, look at ourselves in the mirror of what is achieved elsewhere. And that uh, used to be a very foreign thought. Education used to be a very domestic field of policy. And even today, many people think, you know, we're very, operating very differently. And the idea was actually to create a kind of common set of you know, benchmarks where we can see at some aspects of education. It's not everything. You know, I think PISA measures certain aspects of education, but at least those which we can see. And I think what it first did, it uh, took away some of the myths that often cloud our thinking in education. The poor will always do badly in school. Well, that's not true. The 10% most disadvantaged children in Shanghai ended up doing as well as the 10% wealthiest Americans. So poverty is not destiny. I think one important kind of message coming out of this, or you know, immigrants are going to drag down the performance of education systems, is not true. In fact, the country where students study matters a lot more than the country where students come from, shown by PISA. Smaller classes always mean better results. In fact, you know, the drive for small classes is often driven out, the kind of things that are really important, giving teachers time for other things than teaching, engaging them as designers, innovators in the system, uh, and so on. I think that's the first thing that, uh, that PISA has really done. But I also, there was also the idea at the beginning, giving us ideas of what makes education succeed and transform. When you look at the countries doing well, the high value they attach to PISA, not Chinese parents are going to invest the last money, the last resources in the future the education of their children, and in Europe, we have already spent the money of our children for our own consumption today. And that tells you something about the value a society places on education. Do we really believe that every student can learn? 
engaging with how students learn differently, embrace differently, so things that we can see. How do we attract the most talented teachers into education and in the most challenging classrooms? One of the things that I found really intriguing is you first you think it's about salaries. Actually, you don't find much of a correlation. It's not about how financially attractive we have made teaching, but how intellectually attractive teaching is. And so on. So I do think there are lots of really interesting insights that have emerged from this, that have stimulated discussion. Often, pizza doesn't provide answers, but it raises the questions that brings people like us together to debate them. And we'll, we'll come back in a little bit to some of the sort of the learnings and the lessons and uh, implications. But let's just, just to finish for one theme on that, for one second on that idea of the challenge of getting consensus around measuring between different systems. I mean, how difficult was it in the early years of PISA to get buy-in from OECD member states, let alone other countries? It's naturally different because in structural system curricula differ. Now, when we ask ourselves, you know, why ed do we educate young people, there's an enormous spectrum of some people believing this is all about knowledge transmission, mathematics, science, and others believing Actually, the center of education is about values, is about social and emotional skills, character. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I think building common ground on this has never been easy. In fact, the biggest risk for assessments like PISA is to focus just on the common denominator of what we have in common. That would be a very stale look at education. The challenge is to make PISA rich enough so that we can learn from the difference and to have a kind of future-oriented view on education. Some of this has happened. You know, when they started PISA, there was a great you know, push from many countries to focus on knowledge transmission, because that's what we know how to do best in schools. And we took a very clear stance on this, that we're not very much concerned whether students can simply reproduce what they learned. We wanted to see to what extent can they extrapolate from what they know and creatively use and apply their knowledge. And many, many people said, oh, you can't, can't test kids with things that they haven't saw, seen exactly like this in school before. But you know, if you think that's unfair, then life is very unfair. Because the test of truth in our lives is every day. Can we you know, make inferences? Can we apply what we've learned, use, extrapolate from it? So that approach from PISA used to be contested. It's actually no longer. I think this competency-based approach to learning is now pretty well established in education. But it used to be one of the kind of angles where people would debate. I think the frontier has shifted. Today, it's really about 21st century skills, you know, creativity, critical thinking, complex problem solving, social skills. In 2015, when we assessed for the first time social skills, collaborative problem solving, many educators said, that's nothing to do with schools. You know, that's not something that we teach. But again, you know, in society, that's the number one dimension where we see rising demand. So PISA has always had the struggle of pushing the envelope and at the same time keeping the membership on board. So Joao, moving to Portugal for, for a minute. So you're education minister now, but uh, you also had a long, long experience in the education sector and higher education and so on. Just, just thinking back in time, I mean, how in Portugal when PISA first began all that time ago, how was it perceived and how quickly did the country buy into it? Yeah. Okay, so what happened in Portugal? First, I'm Secretary of State, the minister is there. <laughs> <laughs> he can speak uh, later. <laughs> but, but, um, what happened in Portugal was we participated in, since, we participated in PISA since 2000, and we have this constant rise in PISA that makes us happy, but uh, not happy enough. <laughs> and uh, 
but the first participation in 2000 was a kind of a wake-up call. We, we had already identified some problems, but it was very clear that we were way below OECD average and with very specific problems, especially on language and mathematics, literacy and mathematics, and we realized that something was wrong. And when we think of what can we do with PISA, uh, the data that PISA provides was used as a kind of uh, motivation for the country to find some consensus on some areas uh, of investment in education. And just to give you four examples of things we've done, there was a huge program on uh, early language teaching and early mathematics teaching, uh, a program that, that invested on teacher training, in-class training, so collaboration inside the classroom, and the production of, of uh, pedagogical resources, school materials to, to help the teachers to, to, to teach uh, uh, better. There was also a program on, on experimental sciences in preschool and in the early years of schooling. Uh, this was all after 2000. We, we started in 2006 a national literacy plan, which was followed up by a revision of the curriculum for Portuguese for language, because one of the results of PISA, this was very surprising, was uh, Portuguese children, Portuguese teenagers were good in reading narratives they were very poor in reading information from a graphic. And everyone thought, well, but that's much simpler than reading a narrative. This is good news for teachers because we often teach how to read narratives. We don't uh, teach how to read these more, more, more complex uh, texts. So there was a lot also ident the, the identification of some territories as priority intervention, the data from PISA because you have regional uh, asymmetries helped designing this, this, this program. Also, the investment we did on leadership and, tr and uh, providing data. Uh, we didn't have a very clear tradition of talking to our leaders in schools and asking, so what's your rate of grade retention in your school? And many times they said, well, I haven't counted. And this really changed in the last, in the last 15 years, and this input was, was important. Now, there are risks, and uh, I, 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 I have to mention those. Uh, one of them is, uh, uh, as Andre was, was saying, the data provided by PISA is very, very rich. It's extremely rich. It's immense. But the risk is that we only look at PISA as a ranking of countries. And this is the most mm. useless part of, uh, of PISA. Because I don't care. Uh, everyone is very happy that Portugal is going up. But we are halfway and we have a huge problem of equity in Portugal. So let's not be convinced that everything is done because we are going up in Pisa. Let's, let's read the whole thing. The other risk is the risk of narrowing down the curriculum. Uh, because if next year we go two points down in mathematics or in language, there will be a huge fuss about more teaching hours for mathematics for language. And maybe we, be, we may be targeting, targeting at, the, at the wrong side because we need arts in the curriculum, we need uh, humanities in the curriculum, because they are also tools to uh, uh, develop the skills that are then assessed even in the literacy and in mathematics domains. And this, I think, is, uh, is something that we have discussed. I think, I think PISA is not yet uh, communicating well, because, for instance, we, we heard this morning in the opening 
collaboration is a key competence for 21st century. Problem solving is a, a, a key competence for, for, for the 21st century. But then we have the PISA launch, and we're all talking about language, mathematics, and science. And then some months later, we get results about collaborative problem solving. No one is really paying attention anymore, politically speaking. And I think this should help us shape the way uh, PISA communicates so that it helps us shape how this is uh, taken by the countries. Uh, we have uh, indicators on student well-being, student satisfaction, student motivation, and I think the most important piece of information from PISA is the information on equity. If we disregard what PISA tells us about equity, I think PISA is completely useless. Okay, we'll come back to IJS in a little bit, but, but Leonor, perhaps give us the perspective from the Philippines. When, again, was PISA first taken up and what was the reaction to it? Try, try it and see if it works. <laughs> word. <laughs> so get the word out. Um, the Philippines is one of 80 countries which participated in PISA in 2018, round as... Oops, sorry, it's not working. Oh, one sec. Can you talk closer? I feel like it's singing. That's perfect. Mm. The Philippines was one of the 80 countries which participated in the 2018 round of a PISA. It was our very first time to participate. So there was a lot of conversation and debate and also reactions from social media and public as well especially since the culture of the Philippines education is very, very important. It has the highest budget. You have a huge uh, bureaucracy of 800,000 teachers and 61,000 schools, 27 million learners. And so uh, it's a big thing for us. Um, while the survey results will come out in 2019, this year in December, People are already talking about what the results are going to be. Mostly in one very popular talk show, uh, the host of the program said, why are you not participating in peace? <laughs> you don't want to be measured, etc." So one perhaps, uh, one aspect which we need to be conscious about, it's not only as pointed out that ISA has to communicate, we who are participating in PISA also have to prepare to communicate, particularly the analysis of the results, because the public will have its own analysis and its own uh, conclusions. So it has to be taken um, into consideration. Mm -hmm. the, the, there can be political fallout, especially in very sensitive uh, political uh, environments. And people take uh, PISA. Uh, very, very uh, seriously. Um, I would like to put it on record, of course, that we participated because we believe PISA will be useful for us in policy formulation as well as in identifying what our problems are. But we also have to be aware of what PISA can do for us and what it cannot do for us, which we have to do for ourselves. PISA cannot give us all the answers because each country is different one from the other. But we have to identify that which is useful for us and which PISA can provide for us. We also realize that 
global comparisons might uh, raise the uh, individual differences or the regional differences mm. between and among systems of education. So um, we in um, ASEAN uh, countries we have been getting together and discussing participation and PISA, comparing possible results, possible problems, so we can help each other. And this is where PISA can be helpful, mm -hmm. not only to individual countries, but countries at the regional level who want to progress, to move, and march together. So um, we look forward to the 2019 results. I am told, for example, that there might be problems with language and also with the accuracy of translations of questions because um, not all of us speak same language. In the Philippines, we have mm. more nearly 100 languages as well as how many hundred dialects as well. So um, the translation, translation of the questions could be an issue, I am told by um, my people. In conclusion, what I'm saying is that <coughs> we are participating in PISA, but we have to be more sensitive to what PISA can do for us and what we cannot get from PISA and which we have to do for ourselves. But, it, but it's interesting, so it sounds like there's been a lot of discussion and preparation already ahead of it. Yes. And was there, I mean, in the previous round, for example, was there already discussion about taking part or it's is it too sensitive? Time. It's the first time. First time. It's, but, it's but, the first time to participate, but there is already uh, discussion. A lot of polemic. great interest in education in, in my country. And this is why, as I was saying, we have to be sensitive as to how we handle the results. Because okay. one can pick out the negative aspects and attack the ministry, mm. or one can pick on the favorable aspects and win an election. Absolutely. So we'll come back. I mean, Jone, tell, tell us a little about Slovenia and, and what the experience has been thus far for your country with PISA. Uh, we first got into PISA in 2006. And the results were, at the time, above average, which meant that we were happy and satisfied and all of that, which was, which was great. <laughs> but then the reality check uh, came for us in 2009 and 2012, where we, especially with the literacy, were underperforming. And to us, obviously, this is where also we got uh, you know, media attention. Because obviously media react to, uh, to, to, a negative, uh, to a negative story more to a positive story. So, but it also meant, as always, a big um, sobering, really, uh, information to all of us that we must do something with literacy. With literacy, it was a special one part, and that is uh, the, the practicalities, the, you know, the, uh, the issues that are of lower taxonomy but nevertheless, our students could not get it. Why? Because we were teaching literacy in a, uh, as we call it, in a literary way and less in a practical, and less in a practical way. So based on that, uh, already since 2009 and then obviously since 2012, we've changed uh, a lot. But our approach has been not just, uh, our approach has been what we call comprehensive approach. So we didn't just go into, you know, we didn't, we didn't just simply put into the, uh, into the, into the textbooks uh, other, uh, other things. 
But we went, uh, you know, broader. We went into retraining. We went into uh, other aspects. You know, a, a lot of things which, which meant that we were kind of addressing the issue in a, uh, in a comprehensive uh, way with various projects with, uh, coming in from various, uh, various sites for the sake of, you know, getting uh, not just the score up, because that's not, that's not. But the idea is that obviously our children were lacking uh, the competences in, uh, in a very practical uh, uh, type of uh, reading, uh, reading exercise. So uh, in our country, uh, PISA also meant that we were slowly shifting our policy from uh, you know, uh, whatever we were thinking to a very much evidence-based policy. So it wasn't just about opinions anymore. It was about evidence-based policy. And we've also done now, we're doing what we're doing at the moment is we're doing a step further than that. We're developing our own national uh, system of quality uh, indicators where PISA inputs, where data from PISA will be one of the inputs. We want to bring in as many inputs as possible and then establish national quality indicators and then see where we are. Obviously, PISA gives us international comparison, which is good, but we want to know on the long run in our national system, you know, what are we doing, how are, how are we moving, what are the shortages, what are the good things, and, uh, and so on. So this is something that we're currently uh, working on based as a direct consequence of PISA uh, results, so to speak. Mm. So, uh, George, you want to come back? Yeah, please. PISA is also very useful to us. It's going to be useful because in 2016, we introduced the senior high school and added two more years to basic mm -hmm. education. So it's now from 10 <coughs> years to 12 years basic education. And we graduated our first batch of senior high school last year. So uh, this uh, PISA tests will be very useful in assessing the progress of the reforms transitions that we have instituted in the department. Mm -hmm. Very dramatic, very controversial, resulting in legal cases and so on. But we have persisted in this additional two years. Also, um, I quite agree with the comment of Portugal that uh, even as we emphasize catching up with science, with technology, with mathematics, we should not forget our national identity. Mm -hmm. We should not forget our culture, our humanity being, for example, in our case, as, as, as Filipinos, as part of our educational uh, system, even as we try to be uh, competitive. Another small aspect <coughs> probably is not very important to many of us, is the aspect of the um, expenditure, the budgetary requirements of participating in PISA, because the training sessions sometimes, the meetings are held in countries which are very far from <coughs> us and which really uh, cost a great deal when we have to train our own uh, teachers in the implementation of the exam. So this is a very serious question in so far as I am concerned coming from a not so rich country. But hopefully the investment will be worth it.
to address a lot of, um, I would say, largely positive comments about growing mobilization and adoption in a wider range of countries, but clearly that sensitivity about particularly the national level rankings and the dangers of simplification, dare I say it, of journalists highlighting um, where countries stand in absolute terms. What's your, what's your response to that? Yeah, actually, I have a lot of sympathy with this. And I, I actually I must say what I admire most in, in Portugal is that, you know, they could have said, okay, we are the fastest improver in mathematics. We, know, we have figured out how to teach mathematics. Let's become better on this and let's become the Shanghai in this. In fact, what they have concluded, okay, we know how to do these things. Let's focus our energy on the big things that are missing in our systems, like strengthening 21st century skills, building a curriculum that is much broader, even at the risk of losing a little bit on mathematics. And I think that's really a very far-sighted use of PISA. They are talking to the best people around the world of how to teach creativity, how to build the arts, and so on. And in a sense, PISA has inspired a kind of long-term dialogue on improvement as opposed to narrowing to a short-term win. And I think that's a great thing. The way the system is run, you know, it's still quite sclerotic. You know, you have, you know, very top-down, centralized architecture. They are working now, how, what can we learn from the world's best performer on strengthening local capacity, building sort of leadership capacity at every layer of the system. I think this is for me almost the ideal example of learning from it, not to be driven by the kind of narrow rankings, but by looking at PISA as a laboratory where we can actually inter engage, interact with the world. Uh, so I think that's very, very important. And I think uh, you mentioned that uh, PISA is very complex, offers a lot of different dimensions. And I do believe that's actually very, very important. It's important not to boil this down to a single metric. We have measures on student well-being, on collaborative so uh, skills, on you know, academic skills. And it is complicated, and uh, I think we need to find our way through this. But I do think the world is multifaceted, and we need to engage with this. What I must say what have impressed me very much in Slovenia is actually the building up of an evidence culture and a research culture on education. I came to one of the launches. It was not PISA, but PIAC, our adult skills. And I was absolutely impressed. They had brought together stakeholders, not just you know, from the Ministry of Education, but from education, from labor, from economy, from all fields of society to think about you know, how do we can make education everybody's business, build a kind of ecosystem around to advance education in the long run. And I think that's exactly the kind of reactions that you would want to see based on these kinds of data. And I, I must actually say, when I look at this, the networks PISA has created at scientific level, at expert level, at policy level. You know, just last week we were together on a meeting where actually coming out of PISA, the ministers and the union leaders from the highest performing systems meet. Because one thing is clear. You know, you cannot drive this alone as a minister. You need to bring the professional board. And actually, what is great is that these days, actually, these people meet, engage, discuss. So I think that's the positive side. I can see the, you know, the, the short-termism. You know, it's, it's clear. It's very hard to convey that to the public. Yeah, that's something where the kind of rankings still dominate the discussion. But what I've also learned, and like you do in, in Slovenia, if you prepare that well, if, you know, in a way, it's much better for governments and uh, society to build up a narrative than to have that narrative driven by a few numbers. So I think I can see, you know, the risks, mm. but I do think mm. that the opportunities are just enormous. And I think all of the examples here, yeah, the Philippines, we don't know yet what will happen, but I think uh, all of the examples I've seen, the kind of inspiration PISA has provided for improvement, for looking towards the future, I think is very, very important. Now, in the OECD, and Joao, you're very central to this, 
We have a project, you know, Education 2030, rethinking the future of education. You know, we know about math and science, but actually the kind of things that are easy to teach, easy to test, have become easy to digitize. You know, the future is about a different skill set. You know, the modern world no longer rewards us just for what we know. Now Google knows everything. We are rewarded for what we can do with what we know, and uh, social skills play an increasingly important role. And I think that discourse is taking place now at the global level. In the past, people would have said curriculum is a domestic or even local field. Now, actually, countries engage how we can learn from each other with each other. No? And Johnny, so going beyond the, the high-level benchmarks, I mean, how useful, what resources are there out there for you to talk to your peers elsewhere to try and find ways that might be culturally appropriate to improve still further your performance? Is that sort of informal network working? Are there some missing uh, areas in that that would be useful? You mean domestically? No, I'm thinking about what you might go to, whether perhaps regional or national yeah. policymakers going to other countries, perhaps yeah. through the PISA network and mm -hmm. beyond. What do you need and what's useful about that exchanging of expertise? There's a lot of things that is, uh, that it, that is useful. As Andreas has said, you know, it's, it's a mirror. But then again, it's, uh, it's a mirror above all uh, to yourself. And there, we shouldn't forget that there is something that's called a global competition for talent. Mm. Let's, let's not forget, I mean, most of the people now, you know, more and more people, globally speaking, are now on the move. So we want to equip them, you know, with, with a good educational uh, resources. We want to equip them with skills and so on. So uh, if we look at it globally, yes, there's, 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 a global, uh, there's a global competition, but there's also, you know, uh, a global cooperation. It's not just competition, it's also cooperation that comes from PISA. And this is something that we're doing. And we're always very open to the, uh, to the others. If the others are coming to us, if they're asking how you're doing, and then we're asking others how the others are doing. So this is something that PISA has, uh, has brought uh, to all of us. And uh, I think it's good. Leonor, you, you made a very valid point about a lot of cultural differences within the Philippines, across a huge country. Externally, in terms of your conversations as you've been preparing for this first round, have there been some countries or resources externally that you have found most useful and relevant and inspiring, perhaps, to help guide you through the process? Actually, we have been meeting with um, other um, ASEAN uh, countries mm. who have participated in, in PISA, and they have accumulated a great uh, amount of, of data which is useful and which helped us make the decision that we will uh, be participating in this round of, of PISA because we uh, like working together with the other countries. We have common problems. We have a common profile in state of education with the exception, of course, of Singapore who is now at the top of the, mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. list. So. Uh, it's a useful tool for us as a region to make comparisons also among um, ourselves and, and mm. this is very um, helpful. And as I was saying, since you are introducing two additional years for senior high school, mm. this is also a good guide for us. Mm. Furthermore, we have national achievement tests. Mm. And we also like to see how our national achievement tests with the PISA results, if we are looking at the same things and how effective also uh, the, our own tests are. 
in identifying uh, the challenges. We are more interested in, uh, in the mm -hmm. challenges, of course, than in the good results. But of course, the public is more interested in ranking side, right. and that cannot be denied. We'll just take a number and make a headline out right. of it. And that is where our communications on both the PISA side as well as the country side is very uh, important and explain what PISA is all about and what it intends to do, and not just compare and run countries one after the other, attach numbers to them. Mm -hmm. can, I, can I follow up on yeah. Yeah, uh, I think when I was listening to all of us, um, the a potential risk of just looking at the, the score and the ranking is actually the risk that always uh, is around the, the 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 word evaluation and assessment in our education systems. That all of a sudden uh, you lose the formative part of assessment, and you only talk about the final result. And this sometimes happens with PISA. And when I, when I say there's a, a big risk is that I, I, I'm in a political position, but I will never feel evaluated by PISA. Uh, whoever, what evaluates politicians is the vote, is the democratic vote, is not, is not an assessment instrument. And, and this is very important to bear in mind. Otherwise, and this has happened in many countries, PISA is taken as the rating agency for education system. It's the standard and poor's of, 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 of education. And this is the worst, because then all of a sudden, we disregard all this very rich array of information that we get in PISA, and we're all in, only concerned about the, 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 the absolute result. So very much in line with, the, with, the, with what the minister said. Also in Portugal, we, we started in the past three years two uh, paths that are very important for us. One is the introduction of low-stake assessment in very early years. Uh, and they do not return to the families and to the students a grade. They produce a, a descriptive report of what the students can do and cannot do. And we are interested in seeing how this compares with the results that we have in high-stake assessment, in PISA, and in other international tests in which we uh, uh, participate. Then um, one matter of concern for us is that we feel that schools where things have to happen are not fully aware, everyone comments on PISA, but schools, teachers are not fully aware of what PISA is about. And PISA, as has been mentioned, is a competence-based assessment. And if we want to improve, we have the response is a competence-based curriculum, and that's why this 2030 project is so, uh, is so important. And this then creates uh, difficulties and tensions that we have to reconcile. When we, when we think of assessment, we, we think of standardization, but then if we think of efficient solutions, we have to do differentiation and to account for the local, uh, local specific context in which our education systems are developed. So, and, and this is, I think, one good aspect of this, is that because we have a competence-based assessment, we can assess literacy that has been developed in very different ways, mm -hmm. given our traditions, our context, and so on. And we are not going by contents memorized by heart, but if 
our systems do not really know what happens in PISA, uh, if we don't know the types of items that appear, then we may think, oh, I have to teach the classics of literature again because this is how I learned language, otherwise PISA will fail. But then I do this and I fail in PISA. And so this tension has to be uh, balanced uh, uh, many times. But I, I really think the formative nature of, of, of PISA has to be crucial. I mean, I, I think if I, would, if I would make a recommendation uh, to, to all governments, I would say don't take PISA as a rating agency. Take it as a formative uh, instrument. I should actually say, we made some conscious design decisions to support it. First of all, to have multiple dimensions. There was great pressure on us to come up actually with a single rating of education systems. We always created a multidimensional. The second thing we said, you know, in a, in, a, in a country like Slovenia, you could have said, okay, why doesn't PISA test every school? It's almost as expensive as taking a sample and, and so on. And the idea is we didn't want that. We didn't want to have actually the individual assessment of schools with school level results and then a rate. So it was a conscious decision of PISA actually to take just a sample to get a picture of the system, not to get into this mm. dilemma of becoming you know, just summative and not formative. I mean, that's been a really... Let me just add to that. I, I was going to say another thing that we're doing in Portugal uh, right now is uh, when we're talking about PISA results, we're talking in general about quality of education, right? Yeah. Mm. But sometimes we forget to densify and to assign a meaning to the word quality. Mm. And when I mentioned in my first intervention the word equity as central, mm. is I don't care if a school has very good results if it doesn't have equity. Mm. So we need to look at dispersion of, of results. We need to look at the progress that students make in, uh, in each school. So for me, when people ask, when I ask the question, how good is your school? I mean, how inclusive is your school? Uh, and, and this is something that sometimes get out of the focus, and I really think that we need to shift uh, to this. Otherwise, we just have this version in which, okay, I'm, I really care about those, the top performers and the others, they will blur my statistics, so I don't care. Uh, and this, is, this should be taken as a central thing. So I really would like to see the, the ranking of equity rather than the, the ranking of, of, uh, of absolute results. That's actually just, oh, go ahead, go. just one sentence on this. This is actually one of the main findings from PISA. There is no single education system that has risen to the top that has not been inclusive. Actually, mm -hmm. inclusiveness has always been the key to come becoming a good average performer. Generate quantity yeah, I, versus quality, really, uh, equity. Yeah, but above all, you see, um, and that was the critique of PISA uh, as well, and that is that it did not include those many other aspects. Now it includes more and more. But then again, as we were saying, we have national you know, differences, we have national traditions, we have, we have all of that. So out of that thinking, we came up with the you know, idea that we would develop our own uh, set of national indicators national, you know, quality indicators. It's, it's all about quality, where PISA will be obviously one of the important inputs, but then there will be, there will be others which will mean, and equity is one of those, which will mean not rankings, and I agree that ranking schools uh, under that criteria is not good, and that's why also sample is way better than, than having all, all the schools. But nevertheless, you know, we will have more balanced mm -hmm. view 
of what is uh, of what is going uh, of what is going on. Although we have more and more in PISA, uh, if you look deep, if you do post analysis and so on, you know you, you can get you can get even more out of it. But nevertheless, you know uh, we can uh, we can balance. And I agree with with all of you basically that PISA is not about standard and poor's of uh, of education, but it's it's because it's so rich and it's so deep that you can uh, you know you can get a lot more out of it than uh, than just those three numbers or, or whatever. And for you, Leonor, beyond the the core PISA criteria, what would be the additional data points, perhaps, or the the ratings that you would consider most important in the coming years for the Philippines? So looks at reading literacy, mathematical literacy, and scientific literacy, as well as global citizenship aspects. Lisa looks at this. We're very interested, but that we want to balance these uh, competences with awareness of our nationhood, our history, our culture, mm. our dances, interests, and so that we will produce not only a global citizen, but a citizen of our own mm -hmm. country. And this is where we want to uh, integrate or perhaps harmonize our own national achievement tests because we have national achievement tests with, with PISA. Mm -hmm. This does not mean that we'll swallow everything that PISA delivers to us, but I am very, very sure that there will be many areas of information because we also want to be competitive mm. even in our own countries, which mm. now, you know, there are many other countries which are coming into the Philippines as well. So uh, that is how we look at this, uh, and we are determined to participate at this, and we are waiting for the results. And Andreas, let me come back on that question of nuances in the measurement. Um, we've heard sometimes there can be challenges potentially in the translation of PISA questions into local languages. We've heard perhaps about, even though it's competence-based, about certain ways in terms of how one interprets what literacy means, for example. How confident are you that you've got a framework in place now that really is comparable between countries in some of these core areas? Yeah, you know, on the technical challenges, quality of translation, the technical quality of the test, that's, I think, pretty well under control after 20 years. I think we have developed very sophisticated mechanisms. The bigger challenge is the one of you know, curricular relevance. To what extent in a, in a world with very different traditions and ideas about reading, about mathematics, how do we assess this in a way that provides a kind of appropriate, it's not only comparable, but it's also appropriate in national context. And uh, you know, some people always accuse us, you know, it takes you five, eight years to develop a new framework. Actually, that's the time it takes to have those discussions on how do we define mathematics in the 21st century? For example, I mean, I give you an example. I could tomorrow build a test for PISA, mathematics, you know, 10th grade, trigonometry, calculus, and everybody would be happy because that's what features in everybody's curriculum. But ask yourself, you know, why do we teach trigonometry these days in schools? You don't find the answer in mathematics. No mathematician will tell you trigonometry is an important part of mathematics. It's just a specific application of math. You ask the people in the, in, the, in the real world and they will tell you trigonometry, that's all done by computers. Why do you teach people those kinds of calculating skills? The answer why we teach this is because it was relevant 400 years ago when we used those skills to measure the size of our fields. And it's been a relic of the past that if you think about mathematics today, 
you think about computational thinking? You know, can, do you understand the nature of an algorithm? What does it actually mean? Can you think in probabilistic terms rather than to include those things in PISA is controversial because the extent to which this is embedded in national instructional system varies, but that's what our ambition is, not to retrench to the common denominator of what we all do, but to think about the future in a way that is re relevant at a global level, but still something that makes, creates meaning in countries. And what is very clear that in many countries, um, there are skills assessed that are not taught so almost by default, students are challenged with them, but they're still important. In, in fact, I think one of the things that the very domestic field of curriculum development has meant that we often lose sight of very, very important developments in a field, in a subject matter. And then the second challenge is uh, you know, identity, history, and so on. They are crucial components, but that's where comparisons get really, really difficult. And, um, I look at this almost sometimes the other way around. You know, the, the moment where you understand your own language is when you learn a foreign language. That allows you to look at, you know, grammar, concepts, all of those ideas that you were born with suddenly consciously. And I do think the same is with culture. We now build this assessment of uh, global competency. Can students see the world through different lenses, perspectives? Do they appreciate, appreciate different ways of thinking, different cultures? And some people might say, well, that's taking something away from identity and citizenship. Actually, I think it's the opposite. I think the moment we understand different ways of thinking, different cultures, we will understand ourselves much better. And that's sort of, but, but these are obviously really big, difficult items for our discussion. It takes us five, eight years in PISA before we put this into, into the field. And I'm not going to compromise on this. You know, I have lots of people telling me do this quickly, but I think we need to get it right. Anyway. <laughs> Um, I don't know if it's part of the, the topic, but we teach mathematics through music, <laughs> dancing, culture, through indigenous uh, aspects like shapes and so on. Only recently, before I came here, we had a re uh, contest uh, where dances, dance contest on mathematics mm. concepts, mm. including geometry, counting, calculation, where the students make songs and dances and they do it very, very happily and it's not in a classroom atmosphere using indigenous practices and costumes. That sounds like we should have a workshop on that. It sounds mm -hmm. great. But, yeah, well, you'll have to go oh, let me go back to this. Uh, I think what Andres was saying really shows the importance of communicating well what happens with PISA. Mm -hmm. Because let me tell you, I'm a linguist. I cannot comment with content on mathematics, but let's take this as a true statement and the, the, the truth. Yeah. So we need more uh, the ability to deal with probabilities and with uh, understanding algorithms than trigonometry. Now, we invest in this. And then for some reason, the results on mathematics come down. What will people say? These students, they don't even know trigonometry. <laughs> so if, yeah. if we don't know what's behind <coughs> score in PISA, yeah. uh, we may be feeding exactly the opposite of the intention is. So communication is really critical here uh, because uh, the, 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 the boldest way to read the results is, yeah, in my time we knew how to do these things and now look at these results. Uh, so let's just replicate what we, what we were doing in the past. 
I'm keen to, to sorry, yeah, just want to come in, but if, yeah. if anybody's got some questions in the audience as well, we've got a few minutes, so please don't be afraid. But you know, if you want to just want to... Just, want to, one, just one hand up. Okay, well then, let's, uh, have we got a microphone, please? And do please, it's very brief, and if you could introduce yourself as well, please. My name is Uma and I'm from Pakistan. So my question is to the Minister of Philippines. Uh, you said that you already have a national achievement test at the national level in your country and you're participating in PISA this year. So I just wanted to know how are the two different and how do you think PISA is adding value to you? Secondly, when you're doing two assessments uh, similar in nature at the same time, how do you justify that to your citizen as in you must be allocating some financial resources to the national assessment test as well as to PISA? Just wanted to know the story. Well, well, the national assessment uh, tests look at certain subjects which are also examined in PISA. There are other aspects that we look at in the national assessment tests. And we try to see a, a harmonization as much as possible. So right now, for example, uh, since we already have the results of the national achievement test, we're already projecting, in a sense, what the possible PISA results will be. Because, uh, of course, the questions are similar. Mm. It's just that PISA um, is very important for international comparisons, as well as regional uh, consulting uh, consultations, which we regularly have with our fellow uh, Asian uh, ASEAN countries, particularly. And the national achievement tests are used as a basis for going to further studies like university and colleges. Universities and colleges use the national achievement test. PISA, it's very, it's going to be useful for us. We have not yet, we don't have the results yet for policy making, for policy directions, and also for testing the extent to which our achievement tests are also um, relevant and responsive to our needs. Okay, um, one over there, please. Yeah, over there, and then over there. That's we'll take them together, actually. So, why should we go? Thank you. I'm Augustin. I'm from Argentina. I'm CEO of a social company that do experience design, learn skills. And my question is for Andreas. Actually, the main challenges that we have is that we have the OECD PISA, we have the Partnership 21, Skill Builder, Partnership for Deep Learning of Michael Fulan. All of them are speaking about skills. They're putting different names, so they understand them in a in a different way. Um, as a social enterprise, that is trying to teach them and to go into a public and formal system. What do you think we should take into consideration, and how we can build a, a common background so we can move more together? Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, I do actually, you know, them, I, many of these frameworks have more in common than you think. They often use different, you know, nomenclature, different labeling, but it all comes down to inter interpersonal skills, you know, social skills. It comes to intrapersonal skills, you know, your capacity to sort of think for yourself, work with others, and so on. So uh, creative, the capacity to manage tensions and dilemmas, navigate ambiguity. So actually, uh, we should probably do more you know, alignment of those different frameworks. Our Education 2030 project at the OECD is actually about this, to sort of de develop the kind of common nomenclature. But on the optimistic side, I actually do think there is actually a lot of shared agreement now on what is important to be successful in the 21st century. 
um, much more than they used to be in the past. I think if, particularly when you ask employers, you know, employers around the world put much greater you know, weight now on those kinds of 21st century skills. Can you really think for yourselves? Can you work creatively with others? Can you actually uh, work in uncertainty, navigate ambiguities? Can you solve complex problems? So I think actually that is what encourages me, that when we have those discussions today, we are getting much further than when we had them in the past. And uh, there were many different kind of scientific and academic viewpoints on those things. We even have you know, a much better research base now when students learn what best. We know, for example, when we talk about social emotional skills, character qualities, you actually have a very short window at the beginning of people's lives. Now, at age six, seven, brain sensitivity already declines. So I think also our scientific understanding of what students learn best is improving. So I'm optimistic, but I think there's a lot of hard work to be done to build a more coherent narrative around it. No. Okay, there's a question over there, please. Yeah. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. And um, I'm a teacher here at uh, Dubai. I head a school here. And I really speak on behalf of my faculty, and I'm sure with on behalf of many. It's not a question, but a comment that we have. Um, we find it very difficult to actually motivate students take the PISA exam very seriously, and given the fact that so much is dependent on the PISA results in terms of policy and the future of education, mm. really makes us worry uh, about that. And I think the motivation is also because students don't see their results uh, very quickly, and there is no link between how they fare in the PISA exam um, and the results that they get. So I think that's a worry for us uh, in terms of so much dependent on policy, future of education and for us and on at the ground level to motivate students to take it seriously. Thank you. I see a lot of nodding. Do you want to agree on that? <laughs> yes, as I was saying, we do have a communication challenge uh, uh, in the Philippines and in my country about PISA. And we just we are just starting. The public is uh, active in, in many ways. This is why I'm saying that while we see the value, the advantages, the information that we can get from PISA, we are not relying on PISA alone because we have our own tests, we have our own analysis, and our own monitoring systems. And this balance, uh, all in all, just to get hopefully the best results. And uh, whatever tests there are, learners, even in my own country, uh, I'm not particularly excited by tests. <laughs> <laughs> Joao, you want to go back? Yeah, just um, I think I think there's two ways to look at the at the problem you raised. One is, uh, and it's a bit of a marathon rather than a short uh, race. One is uh, what is evaluation and assessment about, and and I think the lack of motivation is because students are trained to take seriously what counts for a grade. And that's, that's a very poor uh, way of teaching. Uh, and that's a very poor way of educating them. Uh, and and this, this also means that we have to pass to the students the idea that we really care about what they know and not about how they perform on a specific day. And this can only be done if, on the one hand, these results that we get from several assessments, national, local, uh, international, 
are appropriated by the schools and discussed, but also if the routines of evaluation and assessment in schools are continuous and not one spot in a moment in a year. And that's where I think we can, but it's, it's a bit marathon-like because uh, then there's the effect of exams, there's the tradition of looking at a grade. And that's why when I said that in Portugal we decided to do our low stakes assessment without a grade, but with a report, a very descriptive report, just to give you an idea, with grades we can have five results. And with these reports, the combination of results gives you about 8,000 results, individual results. Mm -hmm. And now we are inducing the appropriation of schools from these results, mm -hmm. from these reports. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I have a lot of sympathy with this issue, but what you refer to as a problem is actually a deliberate design feature of PISA. I could have solved that very easily. You know, I could have given every student the results, I could have given training material, and I would have produced the same kind of problem that many education systems have, that students cram just what they need to know for the test and then do well. The test of truth in life is not, you know, <coughs> what you learn in school, but are you willing and motivated to continue in a low-stakes situation to learn? And that's really what we want to observe. So there is actually, we intentionally did not create that link between immediate rewards and the test, but we wanted to see to what extent are students willing and able to engage with real life problems. That's the test of truth for all of us every day in life. You know, it's not about, you know, for something, but it's about what we can do under realistic conditions. Okay, I'm afraid we've run out of time. Jone, perhaps I'll give you just one final word. If you had a single um, recommendation, something you'd like to add or remove, perhaps, to PISA going forwards that would be useful, what would you, what would you modify? Take it, but take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> that would be my recommendation, if, it's, if there is just one recommendation. Leonor? PISA would be one of the major sources of policy uh, information as well as great influence on curriculum. Only, Only one. one. Well, this is formative, not a rating agency. Yeah. And address. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I actually agree with those kinds of observations. Uh, but I do think that uh, we need to make education not less of an art, but more of a science. I think we need to have a better empirical underpinning for the decisions that we take. There's, you know, there's a lives of millions of people at stake, and I think we need to get this right, and we need to be informed. Okay, well, thank you very much. Do please thank our panel. <laughs>